0: How do our brains change as we get older? What conditions are we more vulnerable to as we age? And what can you do to help protect your neural health? I'm Anna Machen and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this
1: week... We're looking at the neuroscience of aging. I woke up on the stroke ward in the JR.
2: And specific areas of the brain that are responsible for cognitive functions, memory, and attention shrink more than other areas.
3: Then we re implanted the cells, and the speeds after two months increased a lot.
0: This is how we're wired. Despite grey hairs, eye bags and smile lines, living a long life and growing older is a privilege. But, as many of us can attest, the changes our bodies go through as we age are more than skin deep. And that includes our nervous system and brain. For example, as we heard in our focus episode when we're stressed, it's normal to lose some connections in the thinking and planning part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, as we get older. We also become more susceptible to a variety of neurological conditions, including things like Parkinson's, which my father unfortunately suffers from, but also to things like stroke, which is caused by changes to the arteries leading to
1: and within the brain. My name is Sue Sanders. I live in the North Cotswolds. I'm a stroke survivor of 13 years in July. Before the stroke, I had a full-time job i was a business development manager with a worldwide company and just a busy busy mum. at the time i was working in leamington spa i got a bit of a muzzy headache was pressing the keys on my keyboard but my left hand was unable to press the keys down and i had a bit of a migraine i had i suffered with migraines but i thought nothing of it really so i carried on working took a couple of paracetamol drove home made tea watched television went to bed and then about two o'clock in the morning got up to go to the loo so i was sat on the loo and my husband walked in and he could see that my head was banging against the shower cubicle he looked at me and he said sue sue what's up what's wrong what's wrong so he lifted me off the loo put me onto the bed and then I heard him ringing 999 and I heard him say I think she's had a stroke and I'm lying there thinking a stroke my father-in-law had had a stroke so luckily my husband knew what was happening if you like because my face had drooped my left side of my face had drooped and first responder arrived As we were leaving through the house, going down the stairs in in the ambulance chair, and I could see our 13-year-old looking sleepily eyed from his room, thinking, where's mum going? Where's mum going? What's happening?
0: Sue was only 48 when she had her stroke, which is comparatively young, as most strokes occur in people over the age of 65, with the risk about doubling every decade after 55. We'll explore why this is a little bit later. So what is happening in the brain as we get older?
2: There's a certain amount of changes that happen in our brains. That's Alexandra
0: Tarutoglu. She's an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School.
2: So first, the brain volume decreases overall with age. And specific areas of the brain that are responsible for cognitive functions, memory and attention, shrink more than other areas the cerebral cortex also thins with AIDS, becomes thinner. The cortex is the outer layer of the brain that contains neuronal cell bodies. The thinning is particularly pronounced in the frontal lobes and parts of the temporal lobe. This cortical thinning later on leads to fewer connections, which could contribute to slower cognitive processing. And what research has shown is that The communication between brain regions is also disrupted, becomes weaker as people age. And then you have also changes in the neurotransmitter systems. The brain begins to produce different levels of chemicals that affect neurotransmitters and uh, protein production, ultimately leading to a decline in cognitive function.
0: So obviously, there's some quite big structural changes there. What would we see in the person? What would be affected in their daily lives just by normal cognitive decline that's associated with age?
2: So as we age, there's a certain amount of atrophy that are happening in our brain. It is not enough to be pathological, but it does affect our cognitive abilities. So memory problems are part of normal ageing. Also, older adults sometimes have difficulty focusing on a task and attention problems, multitasking, all these complex Cognitive tasks that as we age, we often become less efficient in doing.
0: Do we know roughly when this normal age-related cognitive decline starts? Is, Is there an age around which it's generally likely to start happening?
2: Our brain changes after we reach age 30 and 40. We start to see those changes that are part of normal aging. And then it becomes worse when we uh, get to our 60s.
0: Right. Okay. so I'm 47 and I'm well in there then in terms of my age, my my cognitive decline starting. Yeah. Yeah, I think I probably feel that every day. Okay. brilliant. Sue, at 48, was only a year older than I am now when she had her stroke. She quickly received treatment
1: in hospital to reopen her arteries. And then I was out of it really for two to three days. I woke up on the stroke ward in the JR. So that was it. I spent two weeks on the stroke ward there and with it being our wedding anniversary, the ward, lovely people, great matron and great staff. The staff were absolutely fantastic. They'd bought balloons (laughs) for me. So I'd got balloons attached to my bed ready to go in the ambulance and somebody said oh is it a boy or a girl and I went no no it's a stroke. Black humour develops I think when you're in hospital for a long time. So
0: what actually is a stroke and why are we more likely to get it when
3: we get older? So my name is Jocelyn Bloch, I live in Switzerland and I'm a functional neurosurgeon working in the University Hospital of Lausanne. So a stroke is when your brain is not anymore irrigated with the blood, you know, so we have main vessels that bring blood into the brain. And if one of these vessels is blocked, generally it's a clot, then part of your brain does not get any more blood and no more oxygen, And then a stroke happens and it means that a part of your brain is dying. So, if this the part of the brain that is dying is eloquent, it means that it's responsible for a movement or for talking or for balance or anything like this, you will have a handicap. You will have... A problem after the stroke. If the stroke is located in an area that is not that eloquent, then you may not even notice that you had something.
0: Yes, I know. My, my father had a very minor stroke a few years ago, and I don't think anything happened and, and none of us actually noticed. So are there certain factors that increase the likelihood, for example, that someone would have a stroke?
3: Sure. First, I would say that uh, age. <laughs> the more you live, the more probably your arteries are going to be a little bit damaged because as I said, you know, you bring blood into your brain thanks to big arteries and these arteries live all your life with you and they can be a little bit damaged with time. So uh, people genetically, some people are more prone to have damages of the arteries, but also probably your habits the way if you smoke or if you don't do sports, if you have a very bad uh, dietary habits, you know, this can also increase the risk of having a stroke. There are some diseases like diabetes, hypertension. Those are the diseases that can increase the risk of having a stroke because it harms your arteries. And the more the diameter of your arteries is small, the less blood is going to your brain and the risk of having a stroke is increased.
0: I mean, I know from, from from family experience, so a stroke, it can affect your motor function, it can affect your speech. What are the sort of treatments that people are, are currently offered to try and maybe reverse or, or reduce the impact of stroke?
3: So there is an immediate reaction we should have when somebody has a stroke. You can limit the, the problem if you remove the clot. And if the blood comes back again into the vessels and irrigate again your brain, you can avoid having any problem and avoid having the death of you, this part of the brain. But if it happens, some, sometimes it happens, then I think there is nothing more than having rehabilitation. You know, the time, rehab, doing exercises, knowing that the brain has kind of plasticity you will recover to some extent if you function, but it can be quite limited. It can be a lot. It depends a lot on the person, on the size of the stroke and also on the age of the person, how much he or she will recover.
0: So that's why, I mean, here here in the UK, we often have adverts on the television saying, you know, if you, re- if you see someone having a stroke, it's, it's the first hour. Exactly. That, that matters.
3: That's true. It's You have to be as fast as possible, knowing that even after a few hours, it's still quite good. But if you can manage this in within the first two hours, it's the best. It's the best and the, the possibility to completely recover after a stroke is very high.
0: Sue has worked very hard on her recovery, on the straight ward and at home and in a specialist neuro-rehab centre which offered a lot of different options from occupational and physical therapy to psychological support and speech and language therapy too. This is especially important if suffering from aphasia, which is the loss of speech, which Sue felt lucky not to suffer from.
1: The left side of my face had dropped so my clot was in the right side of the brain and it affects the left side and if you have a clot, on the left side and get the right side affected a lot of the time people will suffer with aphasia maybe more cognitive issues thankfully i've never lost my speech i mean i never shut up i'm in sales so my speech has never been affected so i'm left-sided hemiplegic so my left hand and arm don't really work my left leg is okay but I do suffer with spasticity on the left side. So when it's cold and and icy, I really, really feel it because the muscles are so very tense. Stroke recovery is all very much about repetition, repetition of movement. And whenever I'm talking to people, I say, you've got to think of the brain as being like a car engine. That car engine drives everything around your body, whether you're blinking, whether you're eating, listening, walking, whatever. So the more that you repeat actions, the better your recovery is going to be. Jocelyn's focus
0: is on different rehabilitative techniques. In fact... So you, you've spoken probably about Michel Rocati and his motor function. That's right. Jocelyn led the team that helped Michael Riccati, from our previous episode, How We Move, walk again
3: after a paralysing accident. But we have a a bigger lab and we work on many aspects of rehabilitation. So there was electricity to reactivate the spinal cord. But we also have a kind of biological group (laughs) working more on cell transplantation. So the idea we had is to transplant cells, autologous cells, meaning that the cells were coming from the own individual, the one who had already the stroke. So we haven't done yet any work on the human being, but we've been doing a lot of works before that on uh, primates.
0: So if this is using the participants' own cells, is that stem cells which you then develop into neurons? How does it work?
3: In our group, we decided to work already on brain cells, on mature brain cells from in an individual. So, for example, in a, in a primate with a stroke, we decide to remove a little bit of cortical cells, cortex, so his own brain, a very small biopsy. And then we grow these cells, and the idea is to reimplant these cells in the area of the stroke in order to reactivate you know, some cells and probably to improve some function. That's a work we've been doing over the past 15 years, and mainly in primates. Essentially,
0: Jocelyn's group caused minor strokes in the brains of primates, which normally caused them to lose the use of one hand. They then allowed them to heal, including doing standard stroke rehab techniques, and they would recover, to a point. They would then implant other cells taken from a different part of the primate's own brain, and saw that two months later there was
3: a new second recovery stage. So after a few weeks of rehabilitation, without any treatment, they were able to move the hands and even to retrieve some food pellets in a tray, but very slowly. And then they kind of plateaued at this speed. Then we reimplanted the cells and the speed after two months increased a lot. It was almost getting to the normal state. But again, it was a very small stroke. It's very difficult to make it correspond to a huge human stroke, you know, that is involving the superficial and the deep structures.
0: So the results so far, you've you've managed to do it, as you say, at quite a, a small scale in primates. I'm assuming the challenges going forward very much involve whether or not you can transplant this idea into humans.
3: So we've already done a lot of this work, administrative work, regulatory work, in order to get the possibility to implant these cells in humans. But on the other side, we would still, you know, we would like to characterize a little bit better the cells that we are implanting. There are a lot of discussions around these cells. Where do they exactly come from? How do they manage to Improve the animal's neurological status. And for that, we currently are doing again new characterizations in order to be safer with these cells. So, compared to when I started this project about 20 years ago, and now a lot of progresses have evolved, and especially in how we can characterize the cells. And at this stage, We do this in parallel to the regulatory work for clinical study.
0: But beyond cell transplantation, Jocelyn is also working on another type of treatment that's more similar to the implant that
3: Michael received. I dedicate a lot of work now in motor rehabilitation that can be also for stroke. I think that spinal cord stimulation and that's something that we can also do to reactivate the muscles of the upper extremity. That's also a project that we have a lot of interest in
0: and Sue was very interested in getting her life back on track after her stroke, despite some dark moments.
1: And a lot of people will say to me, well, you know, how do you cope? And you do have moments where you think, why me? And then you have moments, well, why not me? You know? And what if? And thoughts like that. And I had, I had one really bad day in hospital when I was in Cheltenham. And I think it's when it really hit me and I just cried and cried and cried. And I think once I would got that over, because I've always been a glass half full person and I just grabbed it by the horns, if you like, and thought it's not gonna get in the way of my life. We've got two boys who, who need a mum and they need to see mum hasn't changed. She's still a bit of a nutcase at times but she's still mum inside, she's no different. She might look different on the outside because she's got a funny arm or hand and leg, but she's still mom. you know, she still does the cooking and bits of washing and stuff, you know, she's still there inside.
0: Another key condition that we often think of as we get older is dementia, the most common form being Alzheimer's affecting an estimated one in 14 people over the age of 65, and one in eight over the age of 80. Some pretty astonishing statistics. Alexandra is an expert on the
2: disease. In a person with Alzheimer's disease, which is the most basic form of dementia, toxic changes happen in the brain, and then they destroy the healthy balance in the brain. These changes occur many years, even decades, before the first signs of dementia appear, which is really important to note. This process includes two proteins, beta-amyloid and tau. And these proteins, they somehow become toxic in the brain. Abnormal tau protein accumulates, and eventually it forms tangles, inside neurons. And then beta-amyloid clumps into plaques, which slowly build up between neurons. As the level of amyloid reaches a tipping point, then there is a rapid spread of tau throughout the brain. Eventually, neurons lose their ability to communicate. And as neurons die, the brain shrinks, beginning in the hippocampus, the part of the brain which is really important for memory and learning and people start experiencing memory loss and impaired decision-making and language problems, not just memory, other symptoms as well. And so as more neurons die throughout the brain and atrophy spreads, a person with Alzheimer's disease will gradually lose their ability to think and remember and make decisions and ultimately cannot function independently.
0: So these plaques, in a way, they they actually stop the neurons communicating with each other. They're, in a way, a, a sort of physical wall between the neurons is that what happens
2: yes that's right
0: okay okay and but this is something that it sounds like can happen many years actually so you only actually get the symptoms of not being able to remember things not being able to remember names not being able to process things in the same way sometimes decades actually after your brain has started to experience Alzheimer's
2: exactly and advances in brain imaging allow us to see the course of the plaques and tangles in the living brain decades earlier.
0: But is it the case that maybe if we could catch people at the very early stages of this plaque forming, is there anything you can do to slow the build up of that plaque?
2: So the idea is that if you can intervene early on, really early, then you might be able to prevent the process. One intervention is cognitive training. So that includes programs that are aiming at enhancing reasoning and problem solving and memory and speed of processing. These are all have been shown to be helpful to delay or slow the age-related cognitive decline. But you can increase your odds of healthy brain by engaging in activities like reading and socializing and learning a new skill. Because if you think that in these activities, the brain becomes active. And when the brain becomes active, neurons fire vigorously and they form new connections. The greater the number of connections translates then to greater brain reserve or backup cells if the plaques and tangles so of Alzheimer's disease start to form. Passive activities like watching TV, for example, have the exact opposite effect on the brain. Neurons do fire only weekly and not new connections are being made.
0: There are other important interventions too, from eating a healthy diet to getting regular exercise controlling high blood pressure makes a difference as well and actually if you do suffer from hypertension it's important to get that sorted as early as in your 30s as that's when the brain changes start happening
2: and a common question people ask is about vitamins and supplements despite early findings of possible benefits for uh, brain health no vitamin or supplement has been proven to work in people Overall evidence is weak, mainly because many of those studies are too short and too small to be conclusive.
0: It's kind of that thing, which I think I was always told, which always sounds a little bit like a myth, but the brain is a little bit like a muscle and you've got to use it or you lose it. And that seems to be the message with Alzheimer's.
2: Absolutely. Back then, when we were discussing about the things that we can do to prevent cognitive decline, we talked about a socializing activities that engage our brain if you think that in a more complex network uh, with friends and socializing all this interacting with people includes functions like problem solving and reasoning really thinking that uh keeps our brain active
0: oh absolutely i mean i mean social cognition is probably the hardest cognition that we undertake so i think um yeah it's it's absolutely fascinating And since her stroke, and as she's gotten older, Sue has certainly stayed busy. Both in work, as she got a job doing sales for a renewables company. And I've
1: been there for the last 10 years. They gave me a chance. I'll never forget that because people don't get chances like that when you've had a stroke. So I'm eternally grateful for that. And outside work, where she was
0: inspired to take up archery after attending the Paralympics in London in 2012, where she met multi-Paralympic gold medalist and now Baroness, Tani Grey-Thompson.
1: And I came out of there in my wheelchair and I went up to her and and I actually said to her, you do fantastic work for people who are in wheelchairs, which she does. And I said to her, do any stroke survivors take part in the Paralympics? And she said... Um, To be honest, I'm not too sure, but she said, why not give it a go? So, Sue set to work and joined an archery club. I would hold the bow with my right hand. I had a mouth tab on the string and would bring the string up to my mouth, hold the mouth tab and fire the arrows using my mouth. So, you see, anything is possible if the will is there to do it. And I loved it. Although Sue
0: unfortunately fell and hurt her hip not long before she was supposed to enter the Paralympics Development Team,
1: she's enjoyed a lot of different sports too. Adaptive surfing. I've done adaptive supercar driving. So I've driven an Aston Martin with an adaption on it around a racetrack. Fantastic. I've done indoor skydiving in Milton Keynes. Many years ago, we had our own pony, so I've done riding for the disabled. More and more organisations are becoming inclusive, accessible, make it easier for disabled people to be able to have a life, to live a life, to do these activities. I haven't had a bucket list. I've had a similar sounding word, it list, to get on in life and do all these sorts of things. Life doesn't stop just because you've had a stroke. You just have to adapt to a new way of life and it's how you deal with that actual adaption. I've tried not to let it get in the way of my life and I don't think it has really. It's like riding a horse. You fall off, you get back on, you know? Otherwise the horse has won. Thank you so much to Sue,
0: Alexandra Tarutaglu, and Jocelyn Block for speaking to me. And thanks also to the British Heart Foundation for their support in the creation of this episode. And if you are interested in hearing more stories like Sue's, then you can tune in to the British Heart Foundation's podcast called The Ticker Tapes. Meanwhile, we're back in a few weeks with our penultimate episode of this series, where we'll explore the neuroscience of death and consciousness. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes, where Eva's looking at the science of super-ages. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh-air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.